Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called to him, them, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sin will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered to them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. So if you are new here, you may not have known all the songs that we did today, and some of those may be uh, songs that you can go back and probably YouTube them. But uh, I tell you this, you know, semi-regularly, uh, it seems to me that often um, the last things to fade from your memory are the songs of your childhood, and that's why we sing good songs. Like songs that we believe represent the God that we know and love as revealed in Scripture. And so I just encourage you, one of the things, um, Cumbies, I was just thinking about y'all as we're singing back there. Sure, you can hear us all like singing really loud. But one of the things in our family we try to encourage is sing. Like sing. Open your mouth and sing. And we try to do that regularly at home because I want to ground my kids in the faith. And part of learning is learning great songs that establish you in the faith. And one of the most glorious things to me is to hear sometimes my children singing those songs even at night as they're going to bed. And so we try to provide you with songs that are worthy of you singing and worthy of our God's honor. And so if you would just pray with me, we will begin this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us. We thank you that you have not hidden 
these truths, but have graciously allowed us not only to have your word, but also to have it in our own language. We pray today that you would open our hearts to see that we might understand the truth. Father, we want to raise up people in this church that are faithful, that are grounded, that are humble, that are good stewards of the life that you have given us. So we ask for you by your power to open our hearts to see. We pray that everything that we do in this church would give honor and glory to your name. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. There are some who are still outside of Christ, no knowledge of the gospel. We pray that you would awaken them by your Spirit's power. Cause them to be born again to a living hope. In Christ's name, amen. So today when I think about this text, I think about misunderstanding, rebellion, and and obedience of faith. That's what Paul calls it in Romans. There's a, a commitment there of following Jesus. You may look back over your life and say, I remember a time when I didn't believe the gospel. Some of you may know that time, you know. You may know a time where you struggled to understand it or to believe it or to treasure it. Um, you may have thought of, like uh, C.S. Lewis said, he's, on, he's either a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. You may have had times where you thought he was a liar or a lunatic. You know, there's things where you'll see in this text that kind of come up here. But you're probably not here today if you think that what Jesus did is of Satan. I mean, that's probably not the case. But we do have to stop and consider, like, some of our struggles with who Jesus was and what he did and how we respond to that properly in our lives. And so we're going to be looking at that today, and we we want to be careful to say, like, are we truly submitting to the will of God? We're going to see negative examples of those who are not and then positive examples of those who are. And you really don't want to leave here and think, uh, you know, think lightly, you know, of that. I will say that in this church, I have been reading over First and Second Thessalonians, um, preparing to do some training of pastors in Belize next week. And um, as I thought about that text, there's a chapter one, verse two and three says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I, could, I would say that of, the, of, of you guys. That, that I see there's, there's, there's like works that spring forth from your faith. And labor that springs forth from your love. And a hope that, that results in steadfastness, a faithfulness here. And so it is a wonderful place to be a part of because you see a people who are trusting and obeying the Lord. And so I do I commend you in that. That's important to say, but we have to constantly remind ourselves of the truths of scripture and 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 take the warnings serious because there's some serious warnings in this text. Now, for you to understand it, I want you to look real quick at the whole text. We're looking at verse 20 through 35. Verse 20 and 21 is kind of like one guy called this a sandwich, so you know it's like the bread on this one side. And then you have 
So that would be A1 if you were doing an outline. And then verse 22 through 30 would kind of be the meat of it. And then A2 would be verse 31 and 35. Because you'll come back around and put the other piece of bread, I guess, on the sandwich or whatever. But what you're doing is, is you're saying on the ends, uh, both, situ- both are dealing with um, kind of this confusion about Jesus and his family in their confusion. And in the middle is kind of the worst state of you, you could ever possibly be in, in the place where the scribes are. So you see it was family kind of in confusion on both ends. And in the center, you see with the scribes, they're in the worst part of what could be done here. So this family kind of think Jesus is out of his mind. His own countrymen, which you could say are kind of extended family, are saying he is possessed by Satan. So that's that's what's being addressed this morning. That's what we will be looking at. And so let's just start. And, and so we're thinking misunderstanding rebellion and a, an obedient faith or the obedience of faith, as Paul says. But I want you to look at verse 20 and 21. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So this is at a fever pitch in, in, in Galilee. People are following him, and uh, they're gathered around so much so that when he comes home, they press into the house, which we've already seen before, but to the point where they can, the, the, he and the disciples, you might say, could not even eat. His popularity is great. And uh, it's not, you know, in some people's kind of situations where they're trying to build personal brands. Uh, I don't think that's the idea here. Jesus is not personal brand building. You know, it's in, in, I mean, there's, there'll probably be somebody that writes a book and be like, how Jesus built a personal brand, and you can too, you know. But that's not really what's going on here. He is under these kind of, he's under this, uh, and, and he honestly, he knows what the crowds are like. You'll see that in John's gospel where they're fickle. They like an entertainer. They want a healer. They, they don't necessarily want the Messiah and so he understands all that, but the pressure's on and, and it's heating up. And really, you kind of would say all of the things that Jesus is doing, it's not just to draw a crowd. I've even heard people talk about building a church and they use the model of Jesus and say like, what we'll do is these grand events and, uh, you know, we'll do all that so that what will happen is, is we'll draw the crowd. And I was like, is that really what Jesus is doing here? John's gospel says those things were all signs to demonstrate who he was. And what happens is when he really explains who he truly is, the crowds walk away and he looks at the 12 and say, are you going to go too? And so I think it's just important that you understand he's not just doing all those things to make himself known. He is, he is demonstrating who he is and what he has come to do. And I think it's important that we understand that. Jesus is doing extraordinary works. His power is supernatural. He is healing and casting out demons. That is clear. His teaching is clear about the gospel. All those things. But it's just important to know that um, what he's actually doing is hard for people to understand. And his family in particular. So what do we find out is his family thinks that he is crazy. And if you meet like family members sometimes that sometimes they can be the harshest critics of their own family. You might meet somebody like that. Um, they, they in a way they might be in their minds saying, like, we gotta protect Jesus. 
he's losing it, and the crowds love it, and he's going to end up like ruined, you know, or whatever. And so we we got to protect him. They kind of have in their minds, and, and again, they might be trying to protect, him, but they also might have in their minds like, look, this is bringing a lot of pressure and and struggle around here, and um, they were not convinced at this point of who he is and what he is doing. That that's just a reality, and as you can imagine. Not as bad as Joseph and his brothers, where they're like, remember when they showed up, the brothers, look at the dreamer, you know, which really they were going to end up participating in that dream, but they weren't necessarily maybe looking at him and saying like, we hate him. They may have just wanted to protect him, but it's still unbelief. It's unbelief with good intention. You ever thought about that? Unbelief with good intentions. That's something that could kind of make you stop and think for a moment. So they have gone out to seize him, kind of like John the Baptist was seized. I mean, you almost feel like they're ready to put him in a white jacket and buckle him down and carry him out and put him in a barn somewhere and, like, say, until he gets settled down and the crowd settle down, we got to deal with this. So that's kind of where they are. They think he's gone crazy. Now, that was the first time in this text that we see that. The second time is in verse 31 through 35. And in 31 through 33, it says, And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? Now, I do have to say this. So I'm gonna, what I'm doing is I'm going to, Save the middle for last, so as you can see. just That's the way I think it's probably the easiest way for my mind to think and perhaps yours. So he's doing this in verse 31 through 33. They're saying like, hey, you're, you're, they're outside. The family's outside calling for you. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Which is a question that you may, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question. Uh, because, you know, we're family people. Church, it's fa- we're family people. We're, we're like really big on fam- good family dynamics. We want strong marriages. We want uh, children obeying their parents. We want structure and order in a healthy kind of environment. We don't want a place where husband and wife, we, we're, we're striving to, we want husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and wives to submit to their husbands. Uh, we don't want children to, Tell their parents they're supposed to obey, but children who do obey. We, we want to train children who understand uh, respect and honor and, and do what is right and live under their parents' authority. We, we really believe in all of those things. So there's a part of you when you're looking at this and you think, is Jesus like, what is he doing here? Doesn't he care about his family? Let me ask you something. Can you, so, so-called, so love your family too much? Well, the, the deal is, is if his family got in the way of the kingdom, you have loved your family too much. It's called idolatry. You have put your family above everything else. So there are some people that are like um, so idolatrous towards their children that they won't make them obey. 
There are people that are so idolatrous towards their children that they will put every other relationship aside because they're focused on their children. It's a dangerous place to be because Christ is first. Christ is first. His kingdom is first. What the, parenting is temporary. Marriage is temporary. Like when you die and you go to heaven, you're not going to be sitting there thinking about how you can put your children up at the highest spot in heaven. You know, I mean, that it's they're not going to be the most important thing. We will all be the family of God there. We will all be together there. And so when Jesus said, the people that are a part of my family are those who submit to my authority, who love the son, who are serving him, that, that's my family, because his his family will will see later will will end up some of them will we don't know who how many of them believe but James and um, Jude are both in the New Testament as New Testament writers his brothers but at this stage in the game what he's saying is they are standing outside of the celebration of the King having come and honestly I think we have to say to ourselves like I do not want family idolatry in this place. In our home. Christ is king. Not my children. Not my spouse. Not my parents. Christ is king. And Jesus is looking at that. And he is making that clear. Because they. His parents. or His, his, his mother and brothers. Are in a state. Of lacking understanding. They're in a state of unbelief. They are demonstrating something that is not of the Lord. Verse 34 and 35. And looking about, he said, Here are my brothers and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. Again, our natural family may or may not be in this list. And I think that's just, we have to see that and understand that. In heaven, we are all God's children when we're there. We are all part of this one big family. We will all love each other properly. We will serve God continually. And so, when we look at our lives today, we need to understand that there may come a day when your commitment to Christ, His kingdom, His church, will come in conflict with your earthly family. That's a, big, that's a big deal. And you have to understand that, and you count the cost, and you side with Christ, period. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and, uh, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So he's just explaining that. And Jesus, I think, is presenting that to us. So first we see, as we're thinking about this, there, there's misunderstanding with them. I think that's what's clear. 
they have not come to understand him as the Messiah. That's where they're at. And so they look at him and they say he's out of his mind. That's kind of where they are. The second group, the Jewish scribes, um, they say that Jesus is possessed by the devil. They are in total unbelief, and logic is completely lost. They're illogical. They've lost their, their minds, and you will see that on display. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. So the family saying he's lost his mind. These people are saying his, like I said, extended kind of family in a sense, but also these uh, religious leaders, they're saying he is of Satan. He is possessed by Satan. This is kind of a delegation sent from Jerusalem. This would be of the highest order. You would get together the group of people that you would say, like, go down there, all those rednecks up in the north, which, you know, kind of it's a flip-flop for us or whatever, but go up, go down there and talk to those people and straighten this thing out. The highest trained people were in Jerusalem. So go, well, they put together a group from Jerusalem. They say, we're going to address Jesus. We're going to, like, kind of call him out for what he is, and they are attributing the work of God to Satan. These religious authorities would know what the Messiah would be doing, and they're looking at what he is doing, which is exactly what the Scripture says the Messiah would be doing, and they're calling that of Satan. It's, it's a shocking thing. And so Jesus responds. Look at verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? This is a good question. Which It's always wonderful to watch Jesus interact with these so-called religious leaders who knew everything, how could, can Satan cast out Satan? I was thinking earlier, I was in the group, in the, the young, younger men, kind of their class, and um, it I, I made me think, like, uh, I won't pick on him much more, but like, how could Nate throw himself out of this room? Can Nate throw himself out of this room? That, that doesn't make sense. Like, how could... Wait, he's in the, could he, you know, it makes your mind stop and think, what, what's going on here? It defies logic. Unbelief, settled unbelief, continual unbelief leads to someone lacking logic. Christianity is not like where we don't think. You do think. Jesus is faced with the great thinkers. These were the lawyers and attorneys and the argument builders. And he addresses them. And you see that on display. Verse 24, 25, and 26. He set, goes on to say, and using parables, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. Now, if you think about a kingdom against itself, it's at civil war. It's not, there's no unity there. It's warring against itself. A nation that is destroying itself from within. That, that, that really, honestly, when you read history and you watch, a lot of times nations are not destroyed 
from the outside. It's from the inside. They erode and they destroy themselves. And so I think it's important that you understand that. He's saying that won't work. It will crumble. You cannot sit there and just do that. It will not work in that way. I was thinking it would almost be like a nation today, like bombing its own bombs in a way. And, And like blowing up all these places that like made them strong and able to fight in a war and they begin to just like blow everything up and it's like they can't stand if they're like shooting against each other is the idea by the way for centuries millennia satan has been building his army there's order and structure to Satan's rebellion and his minions and their rebellion. And so, in this case, the troubles outside, um, when you're thinking about that, you're thinking about the division, if there was trouble inside, it really would be greater than the one outside because inside, they're just like imploding, if you will. And the same way with a family. You think about a family that is uh, divided, parents that are divided. We... We sought to divide our parents as kids at times. I don't know if you ever did that. Dad says no, go to mom. Mom says no, go to dad. You're trying to find the weak link where there's lack of unity. You're looking for that. Because when you have that, then you can like take that and use it. Because you know, for whatever reason, those two parents are foolishly thinking that being at odds with one another is somehow going to raise a good family. You, you know what I'm saying? Everybody like, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's not good, right? And so he's saying even a household, it cannot stand. And so I, I think it's important to understand that. And as you're looking through this thing and, and you're thinking about it, he's saying it would ultimately undermine everything if Satan were to come against himself. Verse 27 goes on, and this is really maybe, I don't know, you might call this the strongest kind of parable picture there or whatever, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, when y'all think about that for just a moment, um, how many of you know people that are like kind of have their own little castle? You know, maybe they have a property, a moat around it, uh, guns in every room, you know, they have like, you know, put in every room. Maybe they have like MRE, you know, meals that are going to be ready to eat when somebody comes and attacks them. I heard about somebody not too long ago that had different markers in their field. So they knew that this is 100 yards, 150 yards, 200 yards. So when I guess people start storming their place, they'll be able to like adjust their shots, you know. Um, The idea is they're trying to build their house really strong. And, And so they've kind of like, shaped all this out and had a lot of time to think about that for whatever reason, uh, invested a lot of time in that, prepping for that day, you know, cameras. I mean, you you could just think of a long list of things that you could come up with. But ultimately, uh, the thing is, is in order to go and plunder that guy's house, you got to first go get that guy. That's the idea. And so what he's saying is, if, if, um, 
if the things that are going on are going on, you understand that Satan would first have to be bound for me to be able to do what I'm doing. You have to, he's showing, he's demonstrating his power over Satan. You're watching Satan's little minions, the demons, being cast out like as Jesus is moving through encountering those. He's overthrowing those. And that's kind of what you see. The king has returned to his earthly kingdom and is overthrowing the powers of darkness. That is logical. That is logical. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that, that, that's clear. That follows the Old Testament prophecy, and that follows with what Jesus is doing. He has come on the scenes. There is demonic oppression and sickness and disease and death and all that stuff, and he is overthrowing the powers of darkness and will ultimately do so at the cross. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now this is shocking. And this is stuff people like, boy, people can really struggle and think about and wonder about. And, and, and really... I don't know that it's, it is very shocking, and it is something that makes you stop and pause, but I think it's fairly clear as we kind of work through it. What he's saying is, there is a blasphemy that is so great that it's a damning blasphemy. It's called here an eternal sin. It is a sin that has eternal consequences. The sin against the Holy Spirit is really kind of if you go back to the starting of this kind of this where John the Baptist was speaking, he said, there's one coming that he, I'm baptizing you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we even see as you study a little further, the spirit coming down at his baptism, Jesus empowered by the spirit is moving along and he is routing Satan and all his powers and that is clearly on display. The, the, really, the gravity of their kind of, the, of the scribes' statements here is pretty shocking that they would see something so good going on and see that as evil is kind of the idea. And then they would call evil good. The sin against the Holy Spirit, one author wrote, is thus not an indefinable offense against God, but a specific misjudgment that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than by good that he is empowered by the devil rather than by God. From his baptism onward, Jesus as God's son has been authorized by God's spirit. Whoever, like the scribes, can look at him and say, this is the devil, or conversely, whoever can look at the devil and call him God's son, as does Milton Satan, who felt how awful goodness is and said, evil be thou good. That person is hopelessly lost. They are hopelessly lost. This is an eternal sin because they are calling evil good and good evil. They have rejected the light that's been shown. They are walking in darkness. There is no place for repentance for them for they cannot see the truth. Have you ever observed that? Have you ever observed that? Where it's just these people, I mean, what you would think, like, what? why do you... 
Can you not see what good Christian virtue is or what it means to be right or to do people right? Can you not understand that? Are you not seeing that? And they're at the point where there's total darkness that they're calling what is good. Romans 1 says they're calling what is good evil and what is evil good. It speaks of that. And they give haughty approval to it. And they celebrate their evil and their darkness. It's a scary place. John 3.19 says, and this is the judgment The light, which he's been speaking about Jesus coming, has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They hate light. They despise it. They would rather, they're embracing darkness and it's a damning darkness. There's no hope for them. In a way, this author writes, Wickedness poses a lesser problem to the grace of God than does pride and self-righteousness. Why is that? You, know, you think about it like it was... The scribes and the Pharisees were the religious people. And the tax collectors and the, the sinners, the prostitutes, and all, those, those people were entering in. It was the scribes and Pharisees out there that were staying away from the lord they were moving away from him this 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 kind of warning is very heavy because it reminds you that religion can really get in the way of you knowing the lord it really can and it doesn't take someone very long certain personalities even seem to really be drawn to they move from being like this wayward person to this self-righteous person And there's a real danger there. And I think there's something about this that makes us stop and think, where do I really stand? How could you be in that place? And it is a dangerous place, and it is a strong warning to us. So then the question might be, you might say, have I committed that sin? Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Well, my, my thought in that is this. If you're here today and you are coming saying, Lord, I've said some really wrong things towards you. I have acted in a way, I've turned my back on you at times. I have acted in a way that is horrific. I've done all of these things. Could I be one that's lost without any hope? The Scripture never shows someone that is humble in heart and repentant. It never shows them as forever done. There's always hope for them who are repentant and come in faith trusting the Lord. These people are in such darkness that they there is no hope for them of repentance because they hate the light. The light of the glorious gospel is incarnate before them and they are rejecting it. There is no hope for those people because they really they can't see the glorious light of the gospel like standing before them. And so what do we say when we're kind of thinking about this? I would say to you, like, beware of any time your heart is thinking like Jesus is ridiculous, even more so that you would look and say, he's not who he says that he is. You're not able to see that. And then you might say, well, what what should we do? Verse 35 says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Doing the will of God is honoring the Son. That, that's, 
doing the will of God is submitting to the Son, is welcoming the Son, is listening to His words, is living by His ethics. It's walking in His ways. That's doing the will of God. It's living a life of what we said, put it on repeat, repentance and faith on repeat in your life. That's what doing the will of God is. You should strive with all your might to live for King Jesus, to honor King Jesus, and then and, and really kind of take heed that there's a warning there. That if someone like rejects him, rejects the work that he has done, there's no hope for that person. And so I call upon you today, if you are dead in your sins, lost in your sins, to turn to him. You will certainly not be cast aside. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And for the Christians here, I would just say, like, we want to start doing the will of God is starting or returning to, if you're not, seeking to see the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then to walk under his ways, live by his ways. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for clarity of thought about these things. We don't want to take your call upon us in, in a flippant way. We, we don't want to in any way begin to neglect such a great salvation in Christ. We don't want to be blinded by the lies of the enemy about Jesus. We want to follow him. And Father, I just pray that you would give hearts of faith to these people that are here today. Renew their hearts in faith. May they treasure you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, stand with me at this time. Every week we take...